Well, good morning, church. Uh, we will be turning to God's Word now, so I invite you to grab your Bibles. Uh, we're starting a series in Philippians, uh, so that's where we'll be turning to. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand and one of the ushers on the side will bring you a copy. And if you don't own a Bible, please keep the ones you receive. They are the church's gift to you. Uh, again, we are in Philippians. We will be reading the first chapter. And if you are using one of the church Bibles, you will find that on page 921, I believe. So Philippians chapter 1. This is what Holy Scripture says. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial God and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers Having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, I'm much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better 
But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here that I still have. Amen, church. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come before your word now. We long to be humble under the authority of your word. Father, we have not gathered here to hear me speak, but to hear what you, the living God, has to say to your people today. I pray that you would help me, as Justin prayed, to decrease and that you would increase. Speak through my weakness to your glory for your people. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. The book of Philippians is one with so many tweetable lines. If you've been around Christianity for a while, you've probably heard something from Philippians before. To live is Christ and to die is gain. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Rejoice in the Lord always. And perhaps the most popular of all, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Cue the workout music. But I wonder how many of us have heard these lines kind of like sound bites from politicians or epic moments in movies. Yes, they sound juicy, but taken out of the context that helps convey the message. Well then, what is the message of Philippians? Over the next couple of weeks, we hope to show you that Paul's overall message to the Philippians, and by extension to us, is to joyfully strive together for the gospel. Again, that's to joyfully strive together for the gospel. And as we unpack these chapters of Paul unpacking his heart, we will see that for him, a life worthy or fit for one who has been transformed by the gospel is to labor with others for the gospel with a joy that endures regardless of circumstances. 
Now, I have the honor of opening up the series this morning as we look at Paul's prayer in these opening verses. And what I'm hoping we learn from his prayer is that the outworking of the gospel should lead us to partnership, praise, and progress. We will see this by considering why he prays, how he prays, and what he prays for. So let us first consider the out, that the outworking of the gospel should lead us to partnership. See, as we begin, we must note that what we have in our hands, the book of Philippians, is technically a letter. For many of us, the only thing we get via mail nowadays is either junk mail or bills, so something in the mail might not sound as exciting for us, but it certainly was to the Philippians. And as a letter, it opens up in a familiar structure you would expect. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. We have the senders of the letter, Paul and Timothy. We have the recipients of the letter, the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the overseers, which is another name for elders, and deacons. And then we have the greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, who were the Philippians? During his second missionary journey, the Apostle Paul, Silas, and Timothy, who Paul took under his wing, visited Philippi. Philippi was a leading city in the Roman colony of Macedonia, and in Acts 16, we catch a glimpse of what this trip was like. We learn that they stayed there for a while, and their time was filled with progress for the gospel, as we read of the conversions of at least two prominent people in the city and their whole households. It was amazing. But along with progress, we also learn that their time was filled with persecution for the gospel, as they were attacked, stripped, beaten, and imprisoned. They were eventually released, but they bore the marks of their devotion to the gospel. So the Philippians, they heard the gospel preached, but they also saw firsthand the cost of preaching it. And as time went by, the local church became established, and the offices of overseers or elders and deacons were appointed. So now... Imprisoned and facing persecution for the gospel once again, the Apostle Paul writes to them. If you read through Paul's other letters in the Bible, you'll notice that he almost always refers to himself as an apostle in his introductions. Yet, he doesn't do that with this letter. The only other church letters where he doesn't mention his apostleship in the opening, interestingly enough, is in his letters to the Thessalonians, another Macedonian church. And while there are possible specific reasons he did this for these two congregations, such as modeling humility for the Philippians, one general reason that these two churches have in common is that Paul seems to have a special affection for them. And we'll get to his affection in how he prays, but for now, let's look at why he prays for them. In verses, five, in verses 3 to 5, we read, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, 
Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. If you remember, I said that Paul's overall message to the Philippians was to joyfully strive together for the gospel. And he leads here by acknowledging the fact that they were already partnering with him for the gospel. He's writing to them and he prays for them because of their partnership. They were his day ones, so to speak, because from the first day they heard the gospel preached, they were gripped by it and just had to be involved with what God was doing in Paul's ministry. Yeah, they were imperfect, just like any other church, but their attitude towards Paul was one of conviction and commitment. They were convinced of the gospel message, and they were committed to seeing it spread, especially through the apostle. So we might ask then, what was this message that so gripped them? The gospel is kind of assumed in, the, in Philippians. However, we can piece together the general idea. See, in chapter 1, Paul switches between preaching the gospel and preaching Christ with ease, so we know that this gospel, this good news, has to be about Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, he talks about how this Jesus Christ is God and yet takes on the nature of a human being and dies on a cross in obedience to God the Father. And then in chapter 3, Paul tells the Philippians that this same Jesus, though he died, was resurrected with power and there is now a righteousness, a right standing with God to be found only in him by faith. So if we piece together this information, we might get to a gospel presentation from Philippians and say, the gospel is something like this, that Jesus Christ, although God himself, took on himself a human nature like ours and died on the cross to make a way for us to be made right before God through him by faith, not by our own efforts. And then, though he died, he was resurrected with power and given all authority under heaven and earth, an authority that will eventually be acknowledged whether we like it or not. This is the gospel. Do you believe it? Are you gripped by it? God worked in the hearts of the Philippians through Paul's preaching, and they believed it, and they were saved. And from their example, we see that the outworking of this gospel leads to partnership. See, if you've believed the gospel and have been transformed by it, you'd naturally grow in your desire to see more people come to believe, right? So as we try to learn from their example, we see at least three ways the Philippians' partnership with Paul played out. Now, just a heads up that there's going to be a lot of peas in the sermon, so please be patient with this preacher. <laughs> the first way we see their partnership play out is spiritual, in prayer. As he says of them in verse 19 of our chapter, that he anticipates that they are praying for him regarding his current imprisonment. The second way we see it is financial, in provision, 
As Paul mentions in chapter 4 that they have supplied for his needs more than once. In fact, Paul points to them as an example to the Corinthian church and writes in 2 Corinthians 8 that they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. The third way we see their partnership is physically in presence. For we know that Epaphroditus, one of the Philippians, who probably delivered this letter, was sent to Paul and regarded by him as a brother, a fellow worker, and soldier. And there are also others mentioned in chapter 4 as his co-laborers. See, they partnered with Paul not just by praying for his ministry, and providing for his ministry, but also through co-laborers being present in his ministry. So how about GFC? How are we doing? One of the marks of a heart gripped by the gospel is partnership, the desire to see the gospel spread and the church of Christ strengthened. Does this reflect one of your primary concerns in prayer? that those who you know are doing unique gospel work would be strengthened and fruitful in their ministry, or perhaps that God will call you yourself to go. Over the summer on Wednesday nights, we are praying for the work and fruit of the gospel, not just in our church, but throughout the city and beyond. You might not be able to go on missions. You might not be able to visit missionaries but you can pray right where you are. Or, let's think about this. How about how you use your resources? Does it, does it reflect your priority? See, last week we had the joy of hearing about what God has been doing through two missionary families we support as a church. This came right after our focus on missions in May and raising a special offering. These all highlighted what God is doing in different parts of the world, as well as the great gospel need. But the reality is that the gospel need is not just abroad, but at home too. So how can you partner with others for the sake of the gospel in this city, this country, the world? <laughs> These are questions for us to think about. I know most of us do not set the church budget or plan corporate prayer meetings, but individually, do our lives and actions reflect the partnership that the outworking of the gospel produces? In our passage, Paul tells the Philippians that he is praying for them. But before he shares what his prayer is, he first wants them to know why and how he's praying for them. Now, we just looked at the why, their partnership. Now, let's think about the how, which is the second thing we see that the outworking of the gospel should lead to, praise. Verses 3 to 8 of our passage captures the affection Paul prays for the Philippians with. And the repetition and awkward construction reveals the overflow of his heart. And let me just say, 
If someone was genuinely praying for me with this kind of attitude, I think I would probably add my amen before I even knew what the prayer was. See, as you go through the section, there are five things that are hard to miss about Paul's attitude in prayer for the Philippians. Firstly, he prays with gratitude for them. We see that in verse 3. He says, I thank my God. Secondly, he prays often for them. Again, in verse 3, in all my remembrance of you. Thirdly, he prays with joy for them. Verse 4, making my prayer with joy. Fourthly, he prays with conviction for them. Verse 6, I am sure of this. Verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way. Verse 8, God is my witness. And fifthly, he prays with love for them. I have you in my heart. I yearn for you all. So what does this all reveal about the outworking of the gospel? Well, if I was to summarize, I would say that it should lead to praise vertically and horizontally. First, let's see vertically. For the Apostle Paul, everything that is going on here is mediated through the work of God, both in his life and in the lives of the Philippians. I mean, look at what he says. He is thankful for them, but he doesn't just say thank you, but rather he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. He loves them, but he doesn't just say, I love you guys. He says, with an oath before God, by the way, I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He sees the good work they are doing in partnering with him, but he doesn't just say, keep up the good work. He says, I am sure that he who began a good work in you will complete it. See, everything is Christ-centered and God-shaped for Paul. Now, I know some of us reading this might be thinking, Paul's a bit overly spiritual, isn't he? But for him, God was involved in absolutely everything because he knew that it was all only possible by God's grace. This is why his praise is first of all vertical. After all, it is God's message that gripped their hearts. It is God's moving that caused them to believe. Or like he said to the Corinthians in the passage I read earlier, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So after praising vertically in thanksgiving, he praises horizontally by acknowledging what he has seen in the Philippians. He writes in verse 7, It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. From the way Paul talks about his ministry in his other letters, we can gather that when he says, partakers with me of grace, he's most likely referring to, his, to their partnership in his ministry. So building on verse 5 then, he adds here, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. See, Paul is overflowing with affection for this local church because they have partnered with him through thick and thin, as it were. 
Commentators are unsure about exactly what circumstances Paul is referring to here, but in any case, his commendation of them flows out of their standing with him in his ministry. See, their faithfulness to him has led to fondness from him, and he says he yearns for them with the very affection of the Lord himself. It's an expression I find hard to grapple with, that I could grow to love my brothers and sisters with the affection of Jesus himself. You can chew on that for a while. The outworking of the gospel led to praise vertically and horizontally for Paul. But does it work out the same way in our own lives? Do we give thanks to God with joy for his grace in the lives of our brothers of us? of our brothers and sisters, or does our envy and comparison rob us of our joy and gratitude? When you think of your fellow brothers and sisters, are you filled with praise or with complaints? Do you only see what they don't do that you wish they did, rather than the things they actually do? Do you see their flaws more clearly than their fruits? Now, married couples probably know this temptation well. John and Karen, John and Ritika, pay attention. It is easy to complain rather than compliment, oftentimes because the compliment is assumed. She already knows that I think she's beautiful. Why do I need to tell her again? He already knows I appreciate how hard he works for our family. That's not the point here. See, it sounds funny, but I honestly think this principle applies both in ministry and in marriages. Now, one of the things that surprised and challenged me when I first came to GFC was the practice and emphasis of evidencing grace in the lives of others. For someone who vocalizes probably a third of my appreciation for other people, it has been an area God has been helping me to grow personally. And as I heard people share God-glorifying praise and appreciation, it stirred me up likewise to verbalize my appreciation for others. So far, Paul has been telling them why he prays, their partnership, and how he prays, with praise. Now we turn to our last point to consider what he prays, which is that the outworking of the gospel would lead to progress. My wife and I have a daughter who's about 15 months now, and she has this tower of rings that we play with together by stacking them in order. And sometimes when we're playing together, she gets about two or three rings in, and then she's like, okay, I'm done now, I'm good. And I'm like, no, let's keep going. We need a resolution for what we started here. But she's like, nope. And she just walks off with the rest of the rings. I mean, talk about rude, right? But see, she was content with how far she'd gotten. And she didn't see the need to keep going. Friends, we can't live our Christian lives like a toddler at play. The gospel at work in our hearts should always lead us to progress. Earlier in verses 3 to 4, Paul tells the Philippians that he's praying for them. And now look with me at verses 9 to 11 as he shares the content 
of his prayer, what he is praying for. He writes to them, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This was what was on Paul's heart for the Philippians and what is on God's heart for you today, GFC. So let's dive a little deeper and break this prayer down to see how it could apply to our lives. See, he prays that their love may abound more and more. This is a prayer for them to grow in what they were already doing since, well, you wouldn't ask someone to do more of something they aren't already doing. But we see from his prayer that he isn't praying for an indiscriminate love, you know, love in general. No, the love he's praying for is a qualified love because he prays that their love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. An abstract, undefined love is a useless one. He wants their affections to be informed and grounded in knowledge that leads to right judgment. But what is this knowledge and how are they meant to apply whatever it is? I think the hint is found in what he says next. See, he prays for them to grow in a discerning love in order that they would approve what is excellent or to put it another way so that they would approve what really matters. Over the coming weeks, we will see that two key issues these beloved believers were battling with were unity and humility. These issues were threats against his main message to them to joyfully strive together for the gospel. And so even now, as he opens up, his, opens up the letter and prays for them, he prays that they would grow in a discerning love that approves what really matters rather than being distracted or disturbed by things that would affect their ability to stay on mission. And what is the purpose of this? He prays for them so that they would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, which is the day they stand before Christ himself in judgment. See, Paul knows fully well that this life is not all there is. There is another life to come. And the doorway between this life and the next is not necessarily death. See, everyone eventually dies but death is not a free pass into eternal life. Jesus Christ, he is the one who grants entrance into the life to come. This is why when Paul preached to the people in Athens in Acts 17, he told them that God calls everyone to repent of their sins because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Everyone will stand before Jesus Christ on the day of judgment. And Paul prays for the Philippians to be prepared for that day. But we know that Paul isn't praying this doubting whether they are saved or not. 
because he calls them saints in Christ Jesus in verse 1 and confidently asserts in verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's referring to the same day here in verse 10 that he did back in verse 6. So we see that he is praying for the Philippians about something he's already convinced God will do. He already sees the outworking of the gospel in their lives through their partnership, and he is filled with praise for them. And so now he is praying for the progress of their faith. How about you, friends? Do you have the confidence that you will be granted entrance into the life to come? Are you assured that you can stand confidently before Christ on his day of judgment? If so, what makes you so confident? See, I think we can test our confidence in two ways. The first and most important test is an objective one. Ask yourself, do I actually believe in the gospel? That Jesus Christ died for my sins, rose on the third day, and has given me a way to be made right with God based on faith in him and not my own efforts? Have I consciously turned away from my sins and now seek to live a life in obedience to him? If your answer is yes, then the Bible assures you that all those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But maybe you're here and your answer is no, you don't believe in the gospel. Then friend, please know that it is by the grace of God that you find yourself here this morning face to face with this question. You should be even more conscious about the coming day of Christ. It is a day of judgment. And contrary to popular belief, God doesn't just hand out free passes into heaven. Entry to heaven is indeed freely given, but only received by faith in Jesus. Please believe in the gospel. Turn from your sins. You cannot save yourself. Rather than relying on your good works, rely on the one who begins a good work and is faithful to complete what he starts. Turn to him today, I beg of you. The first test is an objective one of whether you believe in the gospel. The second test is a subjective one, but also important. Ask yourself, can I see the fruit of my answer to the first test? See, Paul prays for the Philippians that they would be ready for judgment day. And how would they be ready? He prays that they will be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Fruit, friends, fruit. If we claim to have the seed of righteousness, right standing with God, we are expected to bear the fruit of righteousness, right living before God, which Paul referred to as being pure and blameless. If you have a friend and he tells you, oh, I grow bananas, and you're like, okay, cool, and you visit his farm and find cucumbers, and something doesn't add up, right? Your friend is either a liar, confused, or deceived, or maybe he's convinced that cucumbers are bananas, 
Or maybe he himself is a little bananas, you're not sure. See, apples bring forth apples, oranges bring forth oranges, and righteousness should bring forth righteousness. It's that simple. This is why the second test, though subjective, is also important. Let me give you an example. Going to church every Sunday or giving to the church does not earn you brownie points with God. And I would discourage anyone from finding assurance of salvation solely in their performance. But at the same time, you should expect to see fruit from your faith, right? After all, Paul's confidence of God's working in the Philippians in verse 6 is based on the evidence of fruit he has seen in them in verses 5 and 7. So while going to church and giving to church can't save you, if you claim Christ as your own and yet do not gather with his church or care for his mission, it's a cause for concern, isn't it? But if you're here and you can answer yes to both these tests, yes, I believe in the gospel, have consciously turned from my sins, not perfectly, but I can see fruit of my faith. If this is you, then be encouraged, Christian. You might not be where you want to be today, but God's word is encouraging you to let the outworking of the gospel lead you to progress. According to Paul, this fruit doesn't ultimately come from us, but from the working of Jesus Christ. Even though you're being called to grow in your faith and in the fruit of it, which is sometimes called sanctification, Paul makes it clear in verse 6 and also here in verse 11 that our efforts for growth and progress are dependent on God's enabling grace at work in us. And the last thing to notice from his prayer here is that he prays all of this ultimately to the glory and praise of God. Their discerning love and their preparation for the day of Christ is ultimately to reveal how awesome God is, not the Philippians. Their salvation is only possible by God's grace in saving, sanctifying, and securing them all to his glory. So we looked at Paul's prayer for the Philippians, a prayer for their progress. How can we apply this to our lives? Last week, I had the joy of spending some time with brothers and sisters, and we were reflecting on the reality that our salvation does not equal our maturity. See, there's a temptation to think, Jesus died for me. I believe in the gospel. I'm saved. I'm going to heaven, and that's good enough for me. But the problem is, those who think like this pay no regard to growth in godliness or in the desire to see God's name glorified, his kingdom come, and his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. The truth is that living in this world is kind of like standing in a river. You might be content with where you are now, thinking you're standing still, but you are slowly being pushed downstream unless you actively make your way up. So don't be surprised if your stagnant faith finds you down a path that you never thought you'd find yourself. 
The apostle Peter wrote to believers, encouraging them to progress in their faith by growing in ways similar to what Paul prays for the Philippians. And then he warns them against being content with their level of maturity. He writes in 2 Peter 1 by saying, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So one way of applying this is to fight against complacency. The complacency, the complacency that says that where you are in your faith is good enough. Good enough is not the goal, friends. Being like Christ is. Always strive for progress in your faith. Another obvious application of this prayer is to pray this prayer. Pray it for yourself. And next time you're wondering what to pray for a fellow brother or sister, pray this for them. Pray that God would complete the good work that he started in them. Pray that their love would abound more and more and it would keep them on mission. Pray that they would not be short-sighted but live in their lives in view of the day of Christ. Pray that they will be filled with the fruit of righteousness to the glory of God. Pray this for our church, friends, that we would all progress in our faith. Another way you could apply this is by taking time to grow in your knowledge of what the Bible says, and more importantly, growing in your understanding of what it means by what it says. See, you cannot judge what truly matters if you don't know what truly matters. This is why Paul prays for their love to grow with knowledge and discernment. But whatever way we might need to grow and progress in our faith, may, may he who began a good work in us complete it for the day of Christ. So friends, as we begin our series in Philippians, we learn from his prayer for them that the outworking of the gospel should lead us to partnership, praise, and progress. A heart that has been gripped by the gospel seeks to be involved in spreading it. It appreciates the work it sees going on and it desires to see even more growth to the glory of God. And may God cause his word to continue to increase and bear fruit in each one of our lives to his glory. Please pray with me. Oh God, we give you thanks for your word. We would be lost without it. And yet through your word and the working of your spirit, you bring light to darkness, sight to blindness. And just as you open the eyes of the Philippians and you open the eyes of many of us here today, we pray that in your great mercy, you would open the eyes of those who don't yet know you. Oh God, you have set a day of judgment to come. Help us to live in light of this. Those who don't know you, would you help them to turn from their sins and trust in Christ by believing in the gospel? And those who do know you, would you help us to grow more and more in our faith, in our love for you and love for one another? And Father, we pray that all of this all our striving, 
all our growth would be to your glory and praise and not ours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.